Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, people. How's your Christmas break going? Well, I want the audit. How many Quality Street have you eaten? How many chocolate oranges have you devoured? Have you been on a walk yet? Have you left your pajamas? Um, is there any turkey left over? I need to know all these answers. So you've got to write in hello at homosapienspodcast.com at homosapiens on Instagram. We'll be here waiting. We're open 24-7. I mean, we're not really, but you know, get in touch. Here we are in the hinterland between Christmas and New Year. Why not dive into a book? Get some escapism, say listening to Uncle Ralph prattle on. Today we are chatting with Theo Vanderbroek. He is a writer for the likes of GQ, the FT and Soho House. He's written a book about his coming out experience. It's a memoir. It's all about his coming out, about the link between clothes and queerness. Because he's a fashion icon, you see. It's a book called The Closet. And I loved it. So it was great to sit down and have what they call in the business a good old gas, a gog. All about the book. Um, so here you go. Here is my chat with lovely Tay. Keep me updated on your Christmas. I find like, you know, when you said the idea, I was like, God, clothes are such a first access to your queerness. You know, like they really are. For me, clothes are like, people talk about fragrance being this vector for memory, right? Where it's like, mm. you smell, I don't know, in a really banal way, freshly cut grass or petrature or whatever, and it takes yeah. you back. For me, it was clothes. And anytime right. that I thought of a memory, it was kind of framed by this item, either that I wanted or was trying to buy or already owned or was being worn by someone invariably that I fancied. And it, and as yeah. a consequence, it was quite, it was weirdly easy to pull together the stories. And as you say, there were so, so many fewer reference points than there are now. And it's like, I feel for kids um, today because it's like you, A, have to arrive fully formed because social media is yeah. there. And if you don't look amazing immediately, you're going to be derided for it publicly. And also, there'll be a record of it. There's like an archive of your style yes. mistakes. And also, it's that kind of weird thing where th through social media, you have access to everything. So there aren't these like three people that everyone fancies. Mm. Although, having said that, I'm not sure how many people fancied, I think my key ones were like Gianni from EastEnders. Oh no, I did. Gianni from EastEnders, Paul Catamol, He's in Paul there. Catamol, rest in peace from S Club 7. Rest in peace. And of course, Abs from 5. So I'm relieved to hear yeah. that you had similar similar um, crushes back in the day. Well, Gianni from, Gianni from EastEnders totally, just for his thug value. Um, <laughs> it was that black leather kind of undertaker coat for me. Yes. And well, he was just 
he was just trouble, yeah. wasn't he? But he was sort of trouble, but gorgeous. Yeah. And we <laughs> love that. But then I was very interested that Abs and... I mean, kind of Jay. Like, Rich Rich but, reminded me of oh, my Auntie Rosie, which I think I've said in the book as well. <laughs> you know, these were our lifeblood. They yeah. were our day-to-day. Exactly. But, and, and, but it's really funny that you related to clothes throughout, because um, I want to start with the dress at the okay. beginning. You know, when I read about the dress that you wanted to wear on, on your sixth birthday, it was, yes. I remember, I think when I was like two... I went to a party in a dress. I just wore dresses my entire life as a kid. Like, I I suppose I was probably four, actually. But anyway, I just, like, I grew up with four girls and my sister. And I was in a dress the whole time. And I loved, I had a dog tanning and Juliet figurine. And I loved the Juliet pink dress that she had. And I remember my, you tell a beautiful story in the book about wanting to wear this dress but it reminded me of when I went to this party in a dress and my dad dropped me off at the party and my dad was like amazing and didn't even no one ever told me that that might be odd but I remember that he left me at the party and the front door shut and then everyone at the party started being like why are you wearing a dress particularly the parents actually kids didn't give a shit Mm. and and I was like, fuck, I'm stuck here in this dress. And I felt amazing up until <laughs> until now. But now I can't leave mm. and I can't get out mm. the dress because I've got nothing mm. to wear. And and it so struck me because you said someone says to your dad when you're wearing the dress, is that right? Yeah, my, my, so I, I get the dress. It's kind of the, that chapter, the mission is to get this dress. It's in my grandma's dressing up box, which is a yeah. blue princess dress, which I was obsessed with. And I get it. Eventually, I put it on, and I'm kind of shamefaced by some uncles from um, my mum's side of the family. And, you know, I don't hold any ill will towards them. They didn't know any better at the time. But it was a moment of experiencing shame for the first time, for sure. And it's amazing how I've spoken to a couple of parents of children recently who've told me similar stories to what you've just told me about their sons who mm. have, have been embarrassed by the parents and not by the kids when they wear dresses to parties yeah. or to, to any kind of event. And there's this kind of fear that goes alongside boys wearing dresses. But for, I, what I don't understand is why wouldn't everyone want to wear the big blue princess dress, that ridiculous confection that is the prettiest thing that that everyone is drawn to, like some kind of cupcake, yeah. you know? And it, there's there's a strange mm. um, fear of expression that's built into men really early mm. on. And, and it's mm. that fear that carries through and eventually leads to that cycle of shame continuing. And, you know, th- that really, really stuck with me that moment and you know I kind of feel bad writing about it because it wasn't really my uncle's fault and they've all been amazing since and incredibly supportive of the book and they probably feel quite Mm. quite sad to know that it did have the impact that it did but those and it's not just that one moment either it's it's a series of I mean microaggressions is maybe a strong term but it's a series of little knocks that chip away at that joy you feel for expressing yourself through some fantastic ridiculous garment that really means nothing but has has somehow been imbued with this kind of societal pressure um which shouldn't be experienced by a five-year-old six-year-old four-year-old boy no and or girl or anyone if i thought it was just about the dress i wouldn't 
be annoyed for you. <laughs> because what it's actually about is men being taught to repress sides of themselves. Yes. Now, where and how does that go? Where does that go? And it it results in, and I don't want to catastrophize, but it does result in violence. Yeah. It does result in violence against women. You know, it it's repression and the the hatred of femininity and misogyny of that rears its ugly head in many other places. So when someone comments on that kid wearing a dress, for me, it's like this periscope popping up in the lake of like a bigger iceberg underneath, totally. you know, and that's, that's why I get so cross about it. And it, you know, and you did it, I did it. Loads of people listening will have done their own version of it. And it's only created problems for us to have been told not to do it. We, it, where did it go? It went nowhere. We are living proof that there's nothing wrong Absolutely. with it. Absolutely. And it's it still police today. It's really, some friends of mine have a kid who was doing stuff like this and they started talking to me about it. And I was like, this is upsetting me because this is 40 years down the line and it's happened. I know, I know things have moved on, but I was like, I really thought we were past that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a weird thing. I mean, because, you know, even talking about this now and writing about it, I've seen in the faces of some of my relatives and friends when I've been talking about the Blue Princess dress, they immediately like the question is in their face. It's like, what? But are you are you trans? Or there's some, and it's right. and even when we were doing the original cover design, there was a kind of, and okay, if I was, is there a problem? And there's just such a um, binary approach to that kind of thing still. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Another big theme that kind of came at me from the mm. book was your relationship with mm. your dad. And your dad sounds like an amazing man. Um, and there's this moment where there's this moment where he turns up at a party and you've been beaten up for being gay, yeah. right? And he walks into his party. He's dressed as Andy Warhol, which is amazing because it's New Year's Eve. So he's been to a fancy dress party and he's like, where's my son? Yeah. And he wants to talk to the boy who's beating you up. And the the love and protection in that moment is incredible. And it brought a tear to my eye because a lot of the rest of the book is actually quite a tricky relationship with your dad and relating to him. And you talk about the fact that he was often quite angry 
and you also talk about his drinking. Mm -hmm. And I really think that there's a link with the stuff we're just saying about the dress, actually, and the way we teach men, and let's say straight men, to deal with their inner worlds because they actually can't. So they drink and they get angry because they cannot say, and it's not, I'm not saying they're all trying to say, I wish I had a blue princess dress, but I think they're just taught to be strong and that's it. And and all the things that he was struggling with you and your sexuality throughout your life and where you were both having all this friction completely is undercut by that moment he turns up at that party and he's trying to protect you and he loves you. And it's so clear in that moment but he hasn't i felt as a reader he hasn't been able to express it and that's not his fault it's just the way we socialize men totally totally and it was you know a big part of and actually something i came to learn about while i was writing the book was i i think i started quite angry with my dad and Mm -hmm. you know my Mm -hmm. parents had just been through quite a tumultuous shall we say breakup and I didn't really feel like he was taking responsibility for his part to play. I had this kind of anger in me that I needed to expunge. And as I was mm. writing the book, you know, it, it helped me to distill how I really felt about him and his behavior and our relationship. And it was interesting, you know, I wrote, I started writing the book very angry. By the end of it, our relationship had really, really improved. And it, you get that feeling in the book as well. But, you know, we'd become much more communicative. It, it had allowed me to analyze and kind of forgive him some of his worst behaviors. Because ultimately, you know, he was he was flying, he was a pilot. His, his mm. MO was to provide right? It was to be strong. Mm. It was to provide. He was away for weeks at a time. He would come back exhausted, jet lagged, and he would be expected to fit into this kind of familial system that had built up around him whilst he'd been away mm. without him knowing. So I, it was, you know, mum and little club of me and Romy, my sister, and he kind of wasn't part of it. And he, it was because he was sacrificed on the altar of kind of being the man and being the man. To, and yeah. and within that, then unable to express his emotion about being exhausted or not feeling like he wanted to go and do all the stuff that we wanted him to do when he came back and giving him the space. So there'd be these blow ups and they'd be so, they'd be so volcanic. And you know, as you say, they were occasionally often connected to alcohol and it took me kind of recognizing that to be like, oh God, actually, that's that's really tough. And it took dad stopping drinking, which he did after my parents split up, for our relationship to really blossom and to work. Because mm-hmm. you're right, like we hide behind these things that are, are meant to help us. This scaffolding that's put around men that's meant to, and, and women, but it's meant to kind of hold us up. And really, it's just a sticking plaster that's eventually going to fall away. And, you know, I ended up not, I stopped drinking as well when I was writing the book, because I think I realized that what my dad had been going through was also something that I was going through myself. And as I was doing the kind of therapy of writing the book, it was like, oh God, actually, there are parallels here. And I don't want to make those same mistakes. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do those kind of classic um, man things. I want to feel proud of myself and I want to be a good person. If I have kids, I want to be a really present dad. And I want to, you know, and, and that's not to say that that's going to be solved by that one one change. But it was, there's a very long-winded way of saying it was therapy for me writing the book. And I think my dad had already been on his journey of therapy. So we kind of like met at the end and and mm-hmm. we're both 
I, I see him now as a much more whole man who is able to wow. kind of talk to me about kind of real emotional things. And also, sorry, what I meant to say earlier was I think it was particularly difficult with me because he probably saw it was he saw himself reflected in me and he is incredibly hard on himself ultimately that's what this is about it's about if you're repressing and if you're not able to be who you are and you're not being emotionally literate you're you're holding back this element of yourself that you can't really engage with and therefore probably don't like all that much and i don't think he liked me that much as a consequence i may be wrong but that's that's kind of how it felt you said you were doing some things that your dad would was doing and that's why you stopped drinking like what where had you got to in your i'd got to that emotional constipation stage where i would i would end up getting really drunk to express my emotion and then feel Mm. ashamed about it so i'm not crying on friends and and, you know i was not i was not particularly happy at that point it was it was i basically just reached a point where I didn't know how to compute my emotions and I was putting it all into drinking. And I just had this big argument with a friend and it was completely unnecessary. And I woke up in the morning and I was like, oh God, this this is now, it's, it's become totally apparent that alcohol is no longer a solution. It's no longer kind of a fun thing to do. It's no longer fine and dealable with. It's actually become a problem. It's become a barrier to to maintaining relationships with people and that was the moment where i was like okay this is where you know to to coin a phrase this is where the fun stops so i went to one aa meeting that morning and um it was it was actually really interesting because it was just in in camberwell and it was a load of really young people professional people who looked really polished and really together and i was like god this is weird kind of felt like an aa meeting in la or something Although it was a dank kind of side room in Camberwell in, in the church. Mm. And there was a guy, some like an Irish guy who asked to be my sponsor afterwards and kind of convinced me that I was going to be injecting meth into my eyeballs if I didn't right. do AA. And I think a lot of people need AA. And AA definitely helped me in that first instance to show me that there was another way. But I think mm. actually my dad having stopped was that for me because i could see him Mm -hmm. as my ultimate role model because he is you know as much as he's an antagonist in the book he's also the kind of hero in many ways as you say about that anecdote with the andy warhol wig and Mm. i didn't i didn't go again but i i stopped and it was kind of the best decision i ever made so um so yeah there were many reasons but it was it was the best thing i've done definitely there, there is no one rule for anybody about drinking or not drinking but i will say that people we do not talk about the fact that it is to drink in a way that is undisruptive in any way to your life is like playing with fire. It is really, really hard. And I think, you know, like to ride that constant wave is, I don't know, I just think we're made to all feel like we should be able to just get drunk and and, and it not affect our emotions. And, and it's interesting what you say about that, um, feeling like we're... You, like we should be able to cope with it. And in some ways, I do feel a little bit like I've like a cop-out because to decide to stop, it's strong for sure. And it's the right thing. But to be able to have moderation is like it's the goal, right? And it's the thing that would take the most strength, or at least that's what we're led to believe. And and you're right, it's 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 almost impossible. And I think it's and it's absolute bullshit as yeah, well. I, right. I feel very strongly about that. And it's like, you know, whoever was it who said the hardest thing is moderation. It's like, someone else said it. 
<laughs> that's good yeah someone said the hardest thing it is, is moderation true. and it's like and i feel really strongly like you're saying that we are sold a lie yeah. and it's rubbish yeah. I think it's also interesting. I forgot to mention actually. I read read the Velvet Rage, as I think many early 30, 30 something I gay men a, <laughs> feel. I think you get a free copy of it when you sign up for this yeah, podcast, exactly, <laughs> or when you turn thirty. And yes. I read it during lockdown. Many cl- they should hand it out at the entrance to. They really should. They read all AA meetings. Maybe <laughs> I read it and it was just like, oh god, like light bulb, blah, but I hadn't stopped drinking at that point, and it was light bulb, light bulb, light bulb. You know, like gay men and mm. the decoration of their lives and the addiction problems, and you see it. It's writ large, not only in the gay community, but it, it but there is there is addiction everywhere in our in our world, yeah. and it's masked as kind of fun. And this idea, and I, I was so convinced for so long, and but partly because my family also were, were like, well, it's fun to be drinking, it's fun to, you know, to be that person, and and it's yeah. and it is bollocks. It's it's absolute yeah. bollocks. It it's just a mask for for stuff that you're not dealing with or coping with, and and it's and it's made to seem like a kind of gay medicine in some in some corners. The Velvet Rage, for anyone who doesn't know, although we speak about it a lot in this podcast, it's a book about what it is to be gay and how it affects your life. Um, that's the shortest, least enticing summary <laughs> I've ever heard. But I think <laughs> anyone who hasn't read it, and it, I think this is LGBTQ plus and beyond, go read it because I think it's super I agree. helpful. Very, um, very helpful. It certainly helped me. That's the end of part one. Uh, part two is on the feed. Go dig in. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Powered by Spirit Studios.